Okay, so this week's lecture is on Twelfth Night, a play which comes from the end of the Elizabethan period. Uh, we think it's written about 1601. We know its first uh, recorded performances in 1602. And that puts it at the end of Shakespeare's comic period. So as you probably are getting a sense of, during the 1590s, Shakespeare mostly writes histories and comedies. There's a couple of tragedies at the beginning. Uh, around 1601, the date of Hamlet-ish, uh, just after Julius Caesar, we're sort of moving towards the tragedies which dominate the early part of the Jacobean period. It's first printed in the first folio in 1623, and it's a play which has got as near thematic neighbours, Hamlet, surprisingly perhaps, it shares the death of fathers and the threat of madness, King Lear, with which it shares a melancholic fool, and in fact, uh, Feste's song at the end of Twelfth Night is echoed by the fool in King Lear. The Comedy of Errors, with which it obviously shares twins. The Tempest, with which it shares the storm. And of course, it also fits with previous comedies of cross-dressing, including Two Gentlemen of Verona, The Merchant of Venice, and As You Like It. Chronologically, it's most closely related to Hamlet, I think, and probably to Troilus and Cressida, and that might give you some sense of the kind of mood you might want to uh, think more about in the play. What I'm going to try and do this morning is to turn the lecture around one marginal character, and I'm, I'm stressing that he is marginal, uh, kind of as an experiment to see uh, what we might do with that. Uh, and this is the character of Antonio, and I think Antonio's role may help us think about some important questions for the play about desire and sexuality, but also about the way comedy works, uh, the way Shakespearean comedy works, and I hope that that will be something which might be useful for you to transfer uh, to a, the study of other plays. So we first meet Antonio in Act 2, Scene 1 of Twelfth Night, and already a lot has happened. He and his companion Sebastian are the final pieces in the jigsaw, they're the last characters uh, not to be uh, introduced in the play, and they're a sign of how the play's complications are going to be resolved. So the, fact, the first act, in a way, sets up the complications, and the second act begins by saying this is how they're going to be resolved. What's happened then so far? Uh, and I apologise for this if you, if you know this play already, like the back of your hand, but as I said at the start of last week's lecture, I'm going to assume that uh, not everybody particularly does do that and that we need to give as much uh, necessary information as possible. So let's think what's happened so far in the play. We've met the lovesick Orsino, languorously in love, perhaps like the speaker in a sonnet, in love with being in love. He's in love with Olivia, a woman who disdains him because she is in extended, potentially excessive mourning for her dead father and her brother. We found a shipwrecked woman, let's call her Viola, although if we were watching the play we wouldn't know that that was her name at this point. I'm going to talk more about that in a moment. Uh, a woman whose brother has been drowned who wishes she could attend Olivia as a servant, recognising their shared uh, status as mourning uh, brothers and, uh, we later hear, fathers, but instead vows to enter the service of Orsino in male disguise. Her male persona, Cesario, is such a hit with Orsino that he sends his new servant to woo Olivia on his behalf. But Cesario reveals to us that he, she, is in a difficult position because he, she, is in love with Orsino himself, herself. Uh, I'm probably not going to keep that pr pronoun thing all the time because it's slightly irritating, but we, we do need to, to, to stress that there is a lot of uh, gender ambiguity in this play, which is something uh, I'm going to be uh, spending a good deal of time on. So the encounter between Cesario and Olivia goes much too well. 
Uh, Olivia is clearly attracted to the messenger's assured confidence, and the pair have a charged, somewhat coded conversation in which Orsino's supposed love for Olivia becomes erotically animated by Viola's secret passion for Orsino and attracts Olivia to Cesario. So, as well as this love triangle, we've been introduced to tensions within Olivia's household. Her strict steward, Malvolio, possibly uh, intended to, uh, to, to signal a Puritan or an extreme Protestant, her strict steward, Malvolio, has clashed with her full fest day. It is clear that the bon viveur, Sir Toby Belch, uncle to Olivia, and his friend and her would-be suitor, Sir Andrew Aguecheek, and Olivia's waiting woman, Maria, are a riotous comic problem waiting to happen. So, into this web of established relationships between the two households of Orsino and Olivia comes Sebastian, Viola's twin, the one supposedly drowned in the shipwreck. So it's easy to see why Sebastian would be introduced at this point. We've had one act of introduction or exposition. The second act begins the long movement towards denouement. In this comedy, at least, Shakespeare doesn't leave the, uh, the, the, the way the comedy is going to be resolved too long. Okay, so, it's, it's a, it's, so in that way, it's quite a comfortable comedy because no sooner have you got the difficulties established than uh, the, the source of their resolution is introduced, so it's quite comfortable. Sebastian is, of course, the fourth character who will enable the triangle, which is Orsino, Cesario, Olivia, will enable that triangle to reconcile into two pairs. And, of course, he is the literal embodiment of the fictive Cesario, the male version of Viola, who will enable Viola to return to herself. It is only when Sebastian recognises her in Act 5, a long... uh, scene which in reading can look rather ridiculous when the twins uh, don't seem able to recognise that they are twins and instead go through this long account of their father and their uh, upbringing to sort of reassure each other, but one which in performance is often extremely moving. It's only in that dialogue that Viola's name is spoken in the play. So anybody who is watching the play rather than reading it would have had no name for this person other than her disguised identity of Cesario. So the audience watching is in the same position as the people in Illyria. They don't know who this mysterious uh, person is. The introduction of Sebastian, therefore, is the means to secure Viola's own separate identity. Now, Viola's assumption of male dress in this play is rather under-motivated in plot terms. It is, after all, an odd decision for a young noblewoman shipwrecked on a shore where, as she admits, she knows via her father, one of the prominent local citizens, Orsino, not to send the message saying, bring blankets and hot soup to the beach, and instead to wonder which of the local dignities she should become a servant to. Viola decides to dress herself in male clothes. At this point, she says she's going to be a eunuch, uh, something happens, seems to happen in the play uh, where we forget that she's supposed to be uh, a eunuch and that may be something actually to do with the practicalities of putting the, stay, putting the play on. Uh, at the beginning of the play, it looks as if Viola is played by somebody who's going to do singing uh, and uh, the eunuch uh, is, is a way of introducing the fact that she'll have a high voice, but we never get that singing uh, Viola. So, uh, Viola is shipwrecked on the beach and takes the extraordinary decision that the best thing to do is to dress herself in male clothes and become a servant. Now, in some ways, the same common sense exception 
to Marcus's behaviour towards Lavinia that I discussed last week when we were talking about Titus Andronicus, and the same counter-arguments apply here. Shakespeare's plays are not always or only realistic. Characters sometimes serve their plots rather than the other way round. It is important for the consequences of uh, Viola's dressing as a man are the most important thing, not necessarily the motivations for it. Uh, and it's quite interesting to think about that as a way uh, that Shakespeare, I think, sometimes divides his, his plotting. Sometimes motivation and what leads up to an action is the most important thing. Uh, we might think about, say, Julius Caesar as an example of that. Sometimes, uh, or, or even Hamlet, uh, sometimes what, ha what comes afterwards, what the consequences are, uh, I, I would think of Macbeth as a play uh, in that kind of structural category. So Shakespeare's plays are not always or only realistic. Characters sometimes serve their plots rather than the other way around. But there's also a more compelling psychological explanation for Viola's behaviour. In becoming her dead brother, she keeps him alive. So she does a comic thing by resisting death rather than a tragic thing by going along with it. She tells us later at the end of Act 3, I, my brother, know yet living in my glass... Even such and so in favour was my brother, and he, well, and he went, still in this fashion, <coughs> colour, ornament. For him I imitate. So for him I imitate. It's only then that it becomes clear that that's her motivation. She's imitating her brother. <coughs> so Sebastian is a necessary introduction who has a role in the plot, perhaps not so much a character as a device, his main purpose is to be substituted effectively for someone he looks like. Okay, it's a kind of opposite or a perverse version of the bed trick that Shakespeare uses in plays like All's Well, That Ends Well and Measure for Measure. The bed trick uh, is based on not seeing the person and so uh, them looking the same, or cats are grey in the dark. We, here we've got Sebastian is in a kind of bed trick uh, in the plot, uh, in that he, his, his only role is to substitute uh, for someone else who the uh, love object thinks that they're uh, talking to. So since his only purpose is to be substituted eff effectively for someone he looks like, we might think it's important for Sebastian to be as individually underdeveloped as is possible. Okay, so if he's going to slot in to be the male Viola, we don't want him to be uh, a unique individual established uh, uh, on his own in the play. So Antonio, his companion here, is therefore not only unnecessary, we don't really need him in plot terms, but he might also be thought to be positively undermining. He undermines the attempt to retain Sebastian's character as a blank sheet. Now, when Antonio and Sebastian enter, they're already on the verge of parting from each other. Antonio is the first to speak. Will you stay no longer, nor will you not that I go with you? Sebastian's answer is no. He needs to bear his ills alone. He reveals to Antonio in a kind of strange, unnecessary bit of um, uh, uh, exposition, I guess. He reveals to Antonio that he is not who Antonio has thought. He has hitherto been pretending to be someone called Rodrigo. We don't know why. He now tells Antonio his real name, Sebastian, son of the Sebastian of Messaline, who was the father of twins. We might remember their Hamlet, son of Hamlet. Uh, so Sebastian of Messaline was the father of twins. The girl has now drowned. Antonio's responses to this story, as it unfolds, suggests that whereas in the past they've had a relationship of equals, this new revelation about who Sebastian really is means that his, Sebastian's, social status is much higher than Antonio's. 
these are Antonio's, uh, the next remarks, pardon me, sir, your bad entertainment, and then let me be your servant. Sebastian rebuffs him, but as he leaves, he does tell Antonio where he is going. I am bound to the Count Orsino's court. Left on stage alone, Antonio gives a short verse soliloquy. The form of his words here, unlike the prose of the scene before, suggests heightened emotion, as it does elsewhere in the play. And the content expresses love for Sebastian. The gentleness of all the gods go with thee. I have many enemies in Orsino's court, else I would very shortly see thee there. But come what may, I do adore thee so, that danger may seem sport, and I will go. I hope you can see already that something in this short scene replays the associations of household service, let me be your servant, and romantic love, I'll do anything for you, which has already been part of the complicated interactions between Orsino and his page Cesario, and Olivia and her messenger Cesario. And these are going to be replayed again when Malvolio is tricked into thinking his mistress is in love with him, Malvolio, servant, uh, thinking that his relationship with his mistress is not one uh, of... uh, sort of household service, but romantic service. These confusions play on the overlap of servitude and eroticism and on the overlaps between the language of devotion and courtship and those of service. And they do something to parallel relationships of those of different social status with those of different sexes. And just as Viola, as servant to Orsino, enters into a relationship of passionate devotion which Orsino can barely understand because uh, of not recognising who Viola is, so too does Antonio with Sebastian. But the overlap of the erotic and the romantic with the devotion of the servant in this scene with Antonio and Sebastian is a striking one. One way to understand this scene is as a lover's breakup. Don't, one party is saying, don't come, with me, don't come with me, it's not you, it's me. I haven't got over my father's death. I'm not the person I think you. I'm not the person you think I am. Probably I'm not even the person I think I am. I'm not the person you think I am. And the other partner is saying, "Don't you want me? Tell me where you're going. I'll do anything for you. I'm sorry I didn't understand how things were for you." It ends with the wonderfully conflicted remark from Sebastian, "Don't follow me. I'm going to Orsino's court." No wonder that Lindsay Posner, directing the play for the Royal Shakespeare Company in Stratford in 2001, had the two men getting dressed on an unmade double bed as they talked. Now, we've learned in scholarship to be more cautious than this kind of staging might suggest. Two historical trajectories have made us mindful of reading the intensity of this scene as a gay relationship in the modern sense. The first is the history of sexuality outlined by Foucault and elaborated and modified by numerous other cultural historians. The consensus from this work is that before, somewhere around the 18th century, sexual practices did not constitute an identity. So the labels hetero or homosexual were not, uh, were not, were not really available. You did things that didn't make you things. You might do things, but you were not defined by them. You might have read the Guardian columnist Suzanne Moore in the weekend papers suggesting we've actually gone backwards in this respect. She wrote, now it seems homosexuality is as fixed as heterosexuality. It's not about what you do, but who you are. Now, historians of sexuality tell us that binary modes, sorry, binary models of sexuality and binary identities formed by sexual practices 
post-date the Renaissance period. Okay, so they come after this period. And therefore, the identity homosexual, which is very available to us as a label for intense same-sex desire, is not really a very appropriate one to read onto early modern culture. The second and related important historical context is the high value placed in this period on male-male friendship. Humanist theories of male friendship idealised it as the perfect union of souls, the Aristotelian idea of a soul in two bodies. And these are terms which we would often now allocate to heterosexual marriage. And in fact, uh, the marriage service in the Book of Common Prayer, a book derived from humanist learning, uh, really uses that Aristotelian idea of the union of souls carried over from male friendship discourse into the discourse of marriage. For Montaigne, the emotional bond between male friends far exceeded any pragmatic alliance with a wife. And for Francis Bacon, also writing an essay on friendship, a man without a friend may quit the stage, may quit the stage, he has no role. It's quite interesting to literalise this in plays. Men without friends in plays are in tragedies, hence the problem of Horatio in Hamlet, who is a threat to Hamlet's tragic isolation. Uh, tragic characters don't have uh, best friends. It's, that's, the, that's the trope, isn't it, of that YouTube phenomenon, the gay best friend coming in at the end of Shakespeare's uh, tragedies. Have you seen any of those? So uh, in comes a wonderfully camp figure who says, come on, uh, you know, let, let's get your hair done and you're too good for him or something. So there's an idea that friendship uh, is, friendship, even in, that, even in that sort of parodic version, friendship is uh, against tragedy. If you've got a best friend, you're not in a tragedy. Uh, and Hamlet knows that. I think that's why he can't really deal with Horatio. And Shakespeare knows that, which is why he doesn't know what to do with that character. So Shakespeare engages with this important tradition of uh, male friendship in two plays whose, indicate, whose titles indicate that their primary concern is with male friendship, not romantic courtship. The Two Gentlemen of Verona and the collaborative work with John Fletcher, The Two Noble Kinsmen. So, so we know that this is, a, uh, this is a, a, a field of interest for Shakespeare. The unfortunately named Walter Dork in a short pamphlet on friendship which he published in 1589, and a, a pamphlet which seems to have been designed to filter down to the uh, slightly lower classes these, this more aristocratic and noble idea of male friendship, describes, he that looketh upon his faithful friend doth behold a perfect pattern of his own person, being, as it were, an alter ego, that is, another himself. An alter ego, that is, another himself. So, Antonio and Sebastian, then, are just good friends. Well, perhaps. It's also true that that phrase in, in, in Antonio's uh, soliloquy, I do adore thee so, I do adore thee so, is unexpectedly fervent. The word adore turns up again in the play in the supposed letter of Olivia to Malvolio, where it is clearly in a context of erotic love. I may command where I adore. Sir Andrew Aguecheek's poignant I was adored once too follows Sir Toby's acknowledgement that Maria is one that adores me, again linking the word with romantic or erotic love. Using a concordance, either a printed one or more 
usually now a searchable text of Shakespeare online, would enable us to broaden out the connotation of the word. Just glancing at that this morning made me think that almost all the occurrences in Shakespeare uh, imply either heterosexual idealisation or some kind of relationship with the gods. So this research would suggest that perhaps Antonio's language, the use of the word adore, has connotations of eros rather than philia, as the Greek terms for erotic love and deep friendship allow us to separate out. So while theatre directors like Lindsay Posner, who I cited a moment ago, have no particular obligation to the historical meaning of their texts, so performed texts are not historical reconstructions, uh, thank goodness, it may be that there is some semantic support for the idea of a strong, possibly sexual bond between Antonio and Sebastian. Those critics who attempt to suggest that Antonio's love for Sebastian is unrequited, I guess that's the, once you acknowledge that, that's how you kind of retreat from the difficult, potential difficulties of this, may be ignoring the importance of Sebastian's greeting to him in Act 5. Entering the stage to clear up the misapprehension that Olivia has married Cesario and that Cesario has beaten up Sir Toby, both these things involve Sebastian, not Cesario, Sebastian addresses his new bride formally and courteously, I am sorry, madam, I have hurt your kinsman. But he turns to greet Antonio in altogether more enthusiastic terms. Antonio, oh my dear Antonio, how have the hours racked and tormented me since I have lost thee? An emotional focus which might be all the more remarkable, given that as well as his new wife, his supposed drowned twin sister is also present on stage. So... Why would this be important? Well, it's important structurally precisely because Antonio is so unnecessary to the plot. He has just 4% of its lines, the same as Fabian. He appears in just four scenes. In two of these, which comprise about three quarters of his lines in the play, he is with Sebastian expressing his love. In Act 3, Scene 3, the pair meet again. Sebastian opens the scene, admitting he is glad to see Antonio, and Antonio says in reply, my desire, more sharp than filed steel, did spur me forth. My desire did spur me forth. Antonio gives him his purse for no reason other than for Sebastian to buy himself something nice. Haply your eye shall light upon some toy you have desire to purchase. There to meet at the Elephant Inn. In the two other scenes in which he occurs, Antonio begins to unravel the plot of the two identical twins. His intervention when Viola is fighting Sir Andrew in the mistaken belief it is Sebastian, and his subsequent arrest when he asks Cesario for his purse back, these are the means by which the play world catches up with the fact of the two twins and comes slowly to unpick the confusions. In this role, Antonio resembles Dromeo of Syracuse in the Comedy of Errors. But that doesn't uh, that doesn't get, can't get away from the fact that his passion for Sebastian is quite unnecessary in terms of that role. I've already mentioned that plots require characters rather than the other way around, but Antonio is a slight uh, um, kind of counter to this. He's a character the plot doesn't really need. So I think Antonio's role must be a thematic one. His desire for Sebastian resonates with Orsino's for Cesario and with Olivia's for Viola, which is to say... However hard we might want to try, it is hard fully to straighten out this play. It's hard to reconcile it to the conventional drive towards marriage. In this light, the play's teasing subtitle, or what you will, 
or what you will, has a decidedly saucy ring to it. Anything goes, whatever you like, every which way. Or perhaps even as the ambiguous ending of Billy Wilder's analogous cross-dress film comedy, Some Like It Hot, has it, nobody's perfect. Critics have tried hard to suggest that the attraction of Cesario for Orsino is that he is feminine. Thy small pipe is as the maiden's organ shrill and sound, and all is semblative a woman's part. That's Orsino's description of Cesario. So uh, the idea there seems to be that Orsino is actually uh, falling for a woman. At some level, Orsino responds to Cesario's femininity. In this interpretation, when the page is revealed as Viola at the play's conclusion, there is a kind of recognition and retrospective understanding. This is the take in Trevor Nunn's highly enjoyable film of the play, which I recommend. The whole thing is available in segments on YouTube, which I'm not allowed to recommend. Toby Stevens as Orsino and Imogen Stubbs as Cesario find themselves repeatedly drawn together, almost kissing during one of Feste's songs before Orsino pulls back, horrified, is he gay? His demeanour when Viola is revealed in the film is one of relief. Ah, that's what was going on. Of course, in a film in which Viola is played by Imogen Stubbs or any other female actor, there is, at heart, a certain gender stability. We all know that Cesario is really female because he's played by a woman. The character of Viola is always somewhere in evidence. Not so, of course, on the Elizabethan stage, where there is no reassuring physical femininity to sort out the play's queer moments. Underneath the character Cesario's pretense of maleness was, uh-oh, maleness. But even if Orsino does fall for a fictional woman in the play, that can't really help us with Olivia, because she also does. Or, rather, it moves the play's uh, sort of tantalising uh, frisson of same-sex desire across uh, from Olivia and Cesario to... Uh, uh, from, sorry, from Orsino and Cesario to Olivia and Cesario. And just as we've looked at the word adore across Shakespeare's works to try and pin down its meaning, so we might look at the name Antonio, used in The Merchant of Venice five years previously to name another man, tied emotionally to a man to whom he gives money and whose marriage he witnesses in conclusion. Something of Antonio in Twelfth Night echoes with this more developed picture of a male friendship structurally and effectively opposed to marital coupling, yet enabling it. So Antonio in The Merchant of Venice is both the threat to uh, Bassanio and Portia's marriage, but also the enabler, the kind of sugar daddy. We might also look at another Antonio and Sebastian remembered in The Tempest. There's something about this name and something about this pairing which keeps turning around in Shakespeare's head. And I'm going to talk more about these adjacent characters and these echoes in a moment when we talk about Antonio's role in the ending of Twelfth Night. So sexual transgression, then, I think, is a crucial part of the play's comedy. And Antonio's role enables us to see that more clearly. Critical attitudes to this and the visibility of this relationship have changed <coughs> along with social attitudes. Writing in the late 1950s, in a book which is still otherwise very influential, his Shakespeare's festive comedy... C.L. Barber describes Twelfth Night in these terms. This is quite a long quotation, uh, so, so I'll read it out twice. The most fundamental distinction Twelfth Night brings home to us is the difference between men and women. To say this may seem to labour the obvious, for what love story does not emphasise this difference? 
But the disguising of a girl as a boy in Twelfth Night is so exploited as to renew in a special way our sense of the difference. Just as a Saturnalian reversal of social roles need not threaten the social structure but can serve instead to consolidate it, so a temporary playful reversal of sexual roles can renew the meaning of the normal relation. One can add that with sexual, as with other relations, it is when the normal is secure that playful aberration is benign. Okay, so the normal is secure. It's a great idea, uh, but I think it's a completely wrong one. Uh, that we would have to find quite, we would have to look quite hard to find a normal uh, or a secure normal in uh, in Twelfth Night. And in fact, the whole point of the play seems to be to challenge that uh, on every front. Barber uh, ends that. Uh, section I've just been quoting, this basic security of the normal explains why there is so little that is queasy in all Shakespeare's handling of boy actors playing women and playing women pretending to be men. Queasy must be a sort of euphemism for uh, kind of homoerotic, mustn't it, or homosexual in that, uh, in that sentence. That's, what Barber, that's what's important for Barber to try and assert uh, in the late 1950s. Uh, and, and if you look at more recent criticism, you'll see there's been an, an entire shift uh, away from that and away from those kind of assumptions. So that the normal is secure seems to me to underestimate the play's charms, or to put that another way, we could see that Antonio's role is in part a challenge to the idea of normativity in these terms. But he may also, as I want to try and explore, be a kind of scapegoat for the play's movement away from sexual transgression towards marriage, a scapegoat for the movement from queer to straight. He's arrested on a charge which even the play itself seems to acknowledge as trumped up. It's related to some mysterious past sea battle. It's a kind of odd moment in the play which doesn't uh, really seem motivated. This arrest might be read as the necessary precondition for Sebastian to undertake his heterosexual plot work to resolve the plot's erotic triangulation. In the second half of this lecture, I want to try and use Antonio to talk about the play's ending and thereby to discuss some of the conventions of Shakespearean comedy and how these might be extended uh, or modified. In a useful contemporary summary of the differences between comedy and tragedy, the playwright and theatrical apologist Thomas Haywood described them in these terms. Tragedies and comedies dif differ thus. In comedies... Turbulenta prima, tranquilla ultima. In tragedies, tranquilla prima, turbulenta ultima. Comedies begin in trouble and end in peace. Tragedies begin in calms and end in tempest. Comedies begin in trouble and end in peace. Tragedies begin in calms and end in tempest. Uh, it's, it, it's, a, it, it's an enjoyable kind of structural sense of uh, the difference between tragedy and comedy being largely a sense of where you choose to start and stop. Perhaps the lowest common denominator of that peaceful comic ending in Shakespeare is marriage. Now, that's not always true, actually, in Shakespeare's plays. Uh, Comedy of Errors, for instance, uh, is very clearly uh, a comedy which doesn't end in marriage and ends with a different kind of family reconciliation. But it's still felt to be such a conventional trope, concluding trope, that Love's Labour's Lost, a highly aloof and self-conscious play about plays and about comedy and about language, can mock it in its conclusion. You may know that that play ends with the marriages deferred, having set up a very obvious sense of how this is going to work out. 
uh, a king and his three noblemen in the opening scene of uh, uh, Love's Labour's Lost say that they're going to devote themselves to study uh, and not uh, have anything to do with women. And immediately somebody gallops up and says, the princess and her three ladies are here at the gate. And we, you know, it's, it's a kind of obvious setup. This is what's going to happen. There are these four marriages uh, at the end. But the play ends with the marriages deferred by the women for a year. So the king says, uh, at the end of Love's Labour's Lost, our wooing doth not end like an old play. Jack hath not Jill. These ladies' courtesy might have made our sport a comedy. Okay, so a comedy uh, is seen there uh, as an old form in which uh, Jack hath Jill at the end. Now, Twelfth Night is clearly heading towards marriage, towards multiple marriages. Olivia and Sebastian have already married, albeit under slightly false pretenses. Orsino accepts Cesario as Orsino's mistress and his fancy's queen. Even Maria and Toby have married in recompense for her work in writing the letter to Malvolio. But Twelfth Night is still a play more than usually concerned with bringing into its long final scene characters for whom the comedy has failed, characters who do not have a comic resolution. And this is in part the sense in which it's been identified variously as dark or post-festive, heading towards the problem plays where the question of how comic the ending is, uh, is is very, very pressing. Plays like Measure for Measure and All's Well That Ends Well. Most prominent, I think, of these anti-comic figures is Malvolio. Malvolio's role in the network of desire and transgression that make up Twelfth Night is an interesting one. His aspiration to marry Olivia, mercilessly exploited by Maria's penmanship, is depicted in great detail. He has a long fantasy in which possession of his mistress is figured in terms of the possession of a range of high-status consumer goods indicative of luxury and breeding. A daybed, a branched velvet gown. Elizabethan sumptuary laws prevented all uh, but the most... Uh, the highest echelons of society from wearing velvet, so even that adjective velvet is very significant. He even wants the latest miniaturised technological gizmo, a watch. The letter, supposedly from Olivia, explicitly encourages these dreams of social mobility. Some are born great, some achieve greatness, some have greatness thrust upon them, where great means, I think, according to OED, of persons eminent by reason of birth, rank, wealth, power, or position, of high social or official position. Okay, so great is a social term. Uh, and Olivia is encouraging Malvolio to rise socially, or to think of himself ambitiously and aspirationally. Amid all the play with sexual identity in Twelfth Night, which I've been talking about already, Malvolio's transgression is a different one. He wants social elevation. And for this, of course, he is roundly punished. The play moves from the often highly comic scene of his humiliation in cross garters, face contorted into an unfamiliar smile. Uh, there's a great uh, joke, one of the best jokes, I think, in Shakespeare, when he replies to Olivia's concern that he is ill. Olivia says, wilt go to bed at Malvolio. He says, brilliantly, inappropriately, to bed, I, sweetheart, and I'll come to thee. So we move from a scene which is often very funny uh, in the theatre, funnier than you obviously found it then, but perhaps I, perhaps I spoilt it. I won't try it again, but it is actually really funny. So we move from a scene which many theatre goers and readers, or at least myself, have enjoyed, to one that many people have felt uncomfortable with. 
When Feste visits the imprisoned Malvolio to persuade him that he is mad, that what he is seeing, uh, that his, his perceptions are uh, uh, twisted and he's not seeing the world as it really is, the joke perhaps seems to have gone too far. Malvolio's return to the stage in the last scene, swearing revenge on the whole pack of you, acknowledges the way the community, it's a really interesting word, pack, uh, because it makes us, the people on stage, the people uh, in the audience, into a kind of a lot of hounds. And there's lots of imagery in this play of hunting, uh, both, both classicised in the myth of Actian uh, uh, and Diana right at the beginning, but also um, bear baiting and blood sports and those kinds of hunting with dogs. Uh, and Malvolio's language there uh, implicates us all in that, I think, in a really interesting way. So Malvolio, swearing revenge on the whole pack of you, acknowledges the way the community has turned on him and on his ambition. It's really important to notice that no such punishment is handed down for sexual transgression. It doesn't seem to matter in this play that women dress as men, even though we think that must be uh, very uh, uh, ch challenging and dangerous. The cross-dressed Viola is the only person at the end of the play who really gets what she wants. She's rewarded uh, for that deception. It's a good reminder that perhaps playing with gender identity is less fraught on the early modern stage than playing with, with class or rank. And we might just say in a kind of parenthesis there, critics have, have I think, come to feel that the spectre of Viola dressed as a man being the, uh, the play's challenge to normative ideas of femininity is a bit of a decoy and that the most challenging figure in this play to conventional ideas of femininity is actually Olivia. Olivia uh, is a high-born female character who says she will not get married. She runs her own household. Uh, she doesn't need a man uh, to uh, enable her to do that. She's an efficient, effective woman who is uh, withdrawing herself from the uh, emotional uh, and, and uh, uh, kind of social forms of marriage. She's like women in Shakespeare, any woman in Shakespeare's comedies who says she isn't going to get married. We know there's going to be some plot convulsion which makes sure she does get married. And that happens to Olivia too. This one argument says that Olivia has been humiliated by uh, her treatment in the play. She's been, she, she, like Malvolio, has been punished for not fulfilling her proper role. So, back to Malvolio. Malvolio is a prominent outsider in the play's conclusion, but so too are others. Feste is also outside the unions which structure the ending of the play, free to deliver then his melancholy epilogue in the form of a song. But to some extent, Feste has been an outsider throughout, an observer of events rather than a participant. But next to them, and perhaps even more alienated from the comic denouement because he has so few lines to speak, is Antonio. Antonio has his longest speech in Act 5 when he expresses the pain of his betrayal by Sebastian, a most ingrateful boy who has repaid him for saving his life with false cunning and denial. And the idea that Sebastian is a most ingrateful boy to Antonio really anticipates the speech where Orsino, thinking that Cesario has married Olivia, also turns on that page and feels a great weight of betrayal. Now, in the Orsino-Cesario situation, it's recuperable because Cesario has not married Olivia and, in fact, is, is there to marry Orsino. We get the same speech, essentially, I think, twice. Uh, once from Antonio talking about Sebastian and once from Orsino talking about Cesario. But the Antonio-Sebastian one, nothing can be done about that. Okay, but have a look at them. I think, they're the same. I think they are the same speech, really. Antonio then looks on as the plots unravel. 
in 300 lines, which, as we know from last week, would take about 20 to 25 minutes on stage. Antonio has four lines of speech, yet he's on stage throughout. Since he's so little used, this seems rather extravagant. An analysis of the casting of Twelfth Night suggests that 14 actors could play it. It's not particularly demanding in terms of casting. But one of those 14 actors is someone to deliver just 106 lines by Antonio, spread, as I said, across four of the play's 18 scenes. It's not much of a part. But the possibilities that the actor playing Antonio could double, could play other small roles as a common uh, structural a structuring principle of Shakespeare's plays. These possibilities are severely hampered by having Antonio on stage in Act 5, Scene 1, which requires 12 characters. Okay, so if Antonio weren't on stage in this scene, uh, he could double up with all kinds of other characters. The fact that he is on stage in this scene means uh, really another person uh, in the play, another person on the payroll. I'm getting all this information from uh, Keir Elam's uh, Arden Three edition of Twelfth Night, which has got a grid about who appears in what scenes, but it's actually really easy to do a casting grid yourself. Obviously, you just do the characters down one side and the scenes across the top. Uh, quite useful, actually, to see uh, who's, who's, in, who's where. You, know, just, you just get a different visual sense of what's happening uh, in a play, and sometimes that can be a good way of getting through uh, all, all, all the talk there is in Shakespeare. <coughs> Uh, I, I don't say you should try and get through that all the time. The talk is the point, but uh, it can be good to, to have a different vis sort of visual representation of the play. So, Antonio doesn't say much in the scene. That prevents him from doubling up roles. And for Shakespeare, who is a playwright uniquely for this period, who writes for a fixed uh, group of actors and knows uh, how, about the, how to use his personnel effectively, this is unusually inefficient. The only logical explanation, I think, must be that Antonio's silent presence in the final scene is important. So it's worth devoting an actor to for that time. Elsewhere in Shakespeare, I think we have become critically very attentive to silences. When a character is on stage and not saying anything, it's, of course, very easy to read over that uh, when we're uh, working from print. But a character on the stage who isn't saying anything is always meaningful. An actor not speaking is full of meaning by their body language. They may be attentive, they may be distracted, they may be dissatisfied or enthusiastic or any number of uh, things from the way they stand and the way they relate to the characters who are speaking. There are some important silences in Shakespeare that have become critical cruxes. Sylvia's response to Valentine at the end of Two Gentlemen of Verona. Isabella's silence as the Duke proposes marriage to her at the end of Measure for Measure the failure of another Antonio, this time in The Tempest, to reply when Prospero offers him forgiveness. Okay, so these are all silences which have become critically uh, very important for how we think about their plays, uh, and their uh, moments in plays which you might want to compare with this moment of Antonio's silence, which we haven't really yet uh, identified. How Antonio should behave in this final scene of Twelfth Night on stage is something worth thinking about. There are no clues, no direct clues in the scene, but as I've suggested, he must be there for a reason. You might have a look out for him uh, if you watch the Trevor Nunn film, although films, of course, are slightly different in that they can turn away from characters who are not interesting. Uh, but that's different from the experience of watching uh, a whole lot of people on stage. The Cheek by Jowl production, directed by Declan Donnellan, 
had uh, an interesting uh, take on this, but also picks up uh, Antonio's sexuality. The problematically jilted Antonio, says the review in The Independent, hooks up with Feste on the wedding party dance floor. I'm not sure I would want to hook up with Feste, but I guess people always hook up with the wrong people at wedding parties. Okay, so perhaps one answer, one f final answer then to the, uh, in, to the question of uh, Antonio's role in this final scene uh, is how we think about comedy itself. Northrop Fry, an important structuralist critic of Shakespeare's plays, whose broad brush observations of shared myths and patterns, I really recommend to you what Fry does is to say uh, these, are, these are big patterns like the, the killing of the king, the movement from winter to spring, uh, kind of big mythical sort of types, but he doesn't do any detailed work, so it means uh, it's quite a useful thing to read, which doesn't stop you actually trying to explore it in relation to particular plays. Uh, Fry notes that the end of comedy is always tinged with something darker. This is a quote from him. This is this quote from him which I really like because it, it tries to link uh, something about the mood at the end of comedy with the mood at the end of tragedy. The sense of alienation, Fry says, which in tragedy is terror, is almost bound to be represented by somebody or something in the play. We seldom consciously feel identified with him, for he himself wants no such identification. We may even hate or despise him, but he is there. So the sense of alienation is almost bound to be represented by somebody or something in the play. We seldom consciously feel identified with him, for he himself wants no such identification. We may even hate or despise him, but he is there. It seems to me a good description of the evasive Antonio in this scene, present, not inviting conspiracy or identification, there are no asides, for example, but he is monitoring something about that genre boundary. Just as in saving Sebastian from the waves uh, before the play begins, he enables the plot to resolve itself. Just as he maintains Sebastian's identity as a separate character, so here Antonio becomes the figure of alienation whose presence secures the comedy. So I've tried to show in today's lecture how if we ask about a minor character in a play, if we say, why did Shakespeare bother to write this small character, how that might open up some of its wider themes. It's something you can easily do with other plays. And you might want to use the RSC Shakespeare, uh, collected edition of Shakespeare, edited by Jonathan Bate and Eric Rasmussen, uh, not least because it has the useful um, uh, facts at the beginning of each play of the proportion of lines for each character. Uh, so it's quite an interesting way of just getting a different snapshot of who's important uh, and, uh, as I've said in the method for this lecture, who, uh, in terms of lines at least, is not important. So those themes in Twelfth Night are about desire and sexuality, and they're also about the genre of comedy and the nature of comic endings. And what I've tried to do today is to show some different ways of thinking about how Antonio's role gives us an angle on these different contexts. Next week, I'm going to be talking about the history play, Richard II. I think the question I'm asking is whether it was a good thing for Bolingbroke to depose him. It will be good to see you then. Thank you. <laughs>